Good morning, First Baptist. It's good to see you. Uh, it was nice to take a little break. I'm very thankful that we've got Pastor Kevin here who can bring the word, can he? And uh, yeah, feel free to clap. Um, and, and I'm glad to be back. You know, I'm very thankful that I get to serve here at First Baptist as one of your pastors. And I'm thankful to be here. So you may or may not know who uh, this man is. His name's Kenneth Clark. He used to host a TV show called Civilization. And in his autobiography, he details probably one of the most honest but also most tragic depictions of someone who has some kind of an experience of God in church and yet at the same time seems incapable of accepting the truth. He talked about it visiting a church one time. He said it was beautiful. He said he had an overwhelming what he called religious experience. He wrote in his autobiography, my whole being was, he said, irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I had known before. But then listen to what he says after this. He said, but the flood of grace, as he described it, created a problem. If he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew he would have to change. His family may think that he'd lost his mind, and maybe that intense joy would prove just to have been an illusion. So he concluded, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. It's a tragic story to hear. Someone who seemed like they were so close, they'd heard the truth, they'd heard the gospel, and yet, as he said, I was too embraced by the world to try and make a change now. Why is it that some people can hear and yet not believe? Why is it some people can, as he described it, have an experience of irradiating joy and yet be unwilling to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet it seems this will be the story for the majority of mankind. Many hear and don't believe, and at the same time, some hear and do believe. And in either direction, there are consequences both for the good and for the bad. And what I want to talk about this morning is what are the consequences of belief and unbelief, the negative consequences of unbelief. By the way, your kids are dismissed. <laughs> we usually have a son. Thank you, Sam. If there's any kids that want to go to children's church, now would be the time to do it. That's a good consequence of belief, by the way. That's good. That's good. The kids can go to church. You could even call this a theology of belief, if you like. The passage I want to look at this morning comes from John chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 37 through 50 of John chapter 12. And if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. Though he had done so many signs before them... They still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have spoken on my own authority. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You may be seated. We're marching on through the book of John. And oftentimes, I said this earlier when we started this series, if you look at stained glass windows in churches, they often use an eagle alongside the Apostle John because they believe that the book of John contains so many high and lofty ideas about Christ himself. And he gave us, the Apostle John gave us the reason why the book itself was written. I would ask, could we together read these verses off the screen? Let's read this together, John 20, 30, and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. This is the reason the book itself was written, so that you would hear the gospel and that you would believe it to be true. And what we have here in the passage that we just read is this final public plea of Christ for people to turn to Him and to believe. I want to talk about our subject this way this morning. I want to talk about these negative consequences of unbelief. We'll look at three of those. Then we'll look at three positive consequences of belief. We'll start out with unbelief and what comes with it. Then we'll talk about belief and what comes with that. So what does unbelief bring with it? We're at this crucial point in the book of John. After all that Jesus has done, after the miracles, after what he's said, people still don't believe. And the book warns us that this was going to happen. It's almost like, you know how you, you watch a movie maybe for the fifth or sixth time, and you still hope it's going to end differently than it does, and yet it never does? That's what's happening in the book of John. Clear back in chapter 1, he said, look, not everyone is going to believe this message. And this section will be the climax of the theme of decision. It is decision time for the people that are receiving this letter. 
And we've seen the journey that Christ has taken. He arrived in Jerusalem at the time of Passover on a donkey. He's saying, I'm coming in peace. I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I'm here to overthrow sin. He came in peace. He began speaking to the crowds. And now we see this last address to the public. In a few chapters, he's going to go into something called the Upper Room Discourse. It's got rich, rich theology about God himself. He'll be there privately with his disciples, but now he's got this public address. So we're going to take a look back here into the Old Testament from Isaiah, who had foretold this moment. The majority of the Jews have not believed in what Jesus has said they have, or, or what he's demonstrated to them. So first of all, we see that belief, unbelief is irrational. Unbelief is irrational. Look at verse 38. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, again, this is coming from Isaiah 53, a very important chapter in the Bible. Tuck Isaiah 53 into the back of your mind. It's a foretelling of the Messiah that is to come and how he's to suffer the one whom the Jews had expected to be their ultimate deliverer. Now, they've seen different kinds of deliverers come and go. Moses was a type of deliverer. He came in and, and delivered them uh, from the Egyptians. Then David came along. He delivered them from the Philistines. But the ultimate enemy is a spiritual enemy from whom Christ would deliver us from sin. And John mentions these two aspects of Christ's message that go without belief, the message itself or what he spoke to them about who he was. And then the arm of the Lord, the passage says, that's speaking of what he has done. Both were to be believed. So after listening to Christ and seeing the miracles, still many were not willing to believe. This is large-scale, catastrophic unbelief by the nation of Israel. Even after they'd seen the wonders of Christ, and, and historically this, is, this has happened. Those same Israelites who, who saw the plagues that God brought down on Egypt to get them out of Egypt, who saw the pillar of fire, who saw the Red Sea split in half, you know, just a few chapters later, they were making a false god. They were worshiping a calf made out of gold. It's happened again. They still don't believe. And by the way, did you know that atheists now have their own holiday? It's April 1st. Because look what it says, Psalm 14. When the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Paul explained in Romans, uh, he says in Romans 1, 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Things have been made known. So people are without excuse. You see, it is not rational to look out the window and say, it all just happened on its own. It's not rational to listen to the testimony of men who walked with the resurrected Christ and were willing to die with him. 
It's not rational to discount what they say as though it didn't happen. The opposite. Belief is rational. It's rational. Everybody's going to have faith in something, and they're going to live by that faith. Unbelief is irrational, and it results in our second consequence, this hardness of the heart. In verses 39 and 40, John reveals that before they would not believe, before they were unwilling to believe, and now they cannot believe. God had hardened their hearts so they couldn't believe. And he quotes Isaiah 6, 10 and uh, verse 40, he says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And again, John's raising up two truths. It's, it's God's sovereignty, His absolute power over all things and all people. At the same time, human responsibility. So when we put our faith in Christ... It takes a willingness, a responsibility. At the same time, when we put our faith in Christ, we never take the credit for it. It's 100% God acting. It's 100% man's responsibility. Both are true. Just prior to this, what does Jesus do? Back in verse 36, right before we get here, he commands those in the crowd to believe. He says, while you have the light, and this is a command if you're, if, if you're a Remember your English? This is a, um, I don't remember the word for command. <laughs> imperative, thank you. This is an imperative. Believe. It's pistuete, the Greek word. Can't remember the English. Believe. He's commanding them to believe. And what you never see in Scripture is someone coming to Christ saying, I want to follow you and I want to believe in you. And Jesus responds, nope, sorry, you're not chosen. You never see that. You never see someone who's neutral being told by Jesus, nope, you're out now. The door to heaven is open for anyone willing to walk through it. But there are some who are unwilling So again, if we put our trust in Christ, we give him 100% of the glory. If we don't put our trust in Christ, we bear 100% of the responsibility. What we're seeing is a judicial hardening of the hearts, meaning that the hardening of the hearts is a result and a punishment of their unwillingness to believe. If you go back and read Isaiah, you see the hardening of people's hearts was a, a punishment there in Isaiah. And the same thing's happening here. And despite Christ demanding and commanding them to believe, they're still unwilling to do it. He gave them signs. As it says in 36 and 37, they wouldn't believe. So now we see in verses 39 and 40 that they can't believe. <clears throat> One commentator, Carson, puts it this way. As a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves has chosen. He's very reformed, if you know what that means. He's very Calvinistic, and he's identifying they're getting exactly what they wanted. 
Israel's heart is hardened because she rejected Christ as a Messiah. And this is what a rejection of Christ brings. There's a point at which God says, you had your chance. There's a point at which the window of possibility closes. In Romans 1, the text says three times that God finally gave people up to their sins. The revelation that comes from verse 41 would have been startling to John's audience. He said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah had a vision of Christ and the glory of Christ, and he's speaking here of Christ, of that glory of Christ. And then finally, unbelief will bring judgment. It'll bring judgment. Look at verses 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So there's this ultimate penalty for rejecting Christ. The judgment that's on this last day is looking at the book of Revelation. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. It's reserved for those unbelievers who do not put their faith in Christ. Ultimately, they will stand before God himself, and they will fully take the wrath of God. They're going to be thrown into a lake of fire. That is the ultimate destination for people who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ. God's purpose in coming to earth, Christ's purpose in coming was positive. This end judgment will be wrathful. Jesus wanted people to experience salvation and not condemnation. That's what he wants for you in this very moment. As a matter of fact, I want to pause here just for a moment. And uh, I want to do something. Normally, I just do this around Christmas and Easter, but I think the text is calling for us to do this today. Would everyone just take a moment and just, where you're sitting, just close your eyes and, and bow your heads and just listen to what I'm saying. I want to be speaking directly to each individual in this room right now because each of you and myself has a responsibility. We have a responsibility to put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we will be held responsible as individuals if we are unwilling to do this. So I'm going to ask you right now, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? If you're unsure about that, I'm going to share something with you right now, that Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, he took on the full sin of humanity onto himself. God came to earth as a man, and he took the full weight and burden of sin on himself so you would not have to bear wrath of God on that last day. So here's what I'm extending to you as an invitation to put your faith in Christ right now, right there where you're seated. If you're unsure about whether or not you put your faith in Jesus, just pray this prayer to him right now. This is more about a matter of the heart. There's not a magic formula of words. But if you were just to say to God right now, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. And right now, I'm putting my trust in you. 
I believe that you are raised from the dead and living. And thank you, Jesus, for the salvation you provide. With every head still bowed, I'm going to ask, if you prayed that prayer this morning, would you please just slip up your hand? Would you please do that? Okay. Thank you. Thank you for those hands. Okay. You can look up. If you prayed that prayer today for the first time, this is your first step in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Just the first step. And I'm going to ask that you would continue seeking discipleship here at First Baptist Church, or if you're here from out of town, a Bible-believing church where you're, where you're at. And there are many wonderful consequences, beautiful consequences, positive consequences that come from putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to give you that good news now because you've put your faith in Christ. Your life has changed direction. It's changed course. So then what does come with belief in Jesus Christ? Let's take a look at this. But before we go to those three, I want to mention something that comes up in the text that it's better to have little belief than none. Now, if you're ever thinking or wondering, man, I don't know if I have enough faith. Do I have enough faith? It just takes a mustard seed of faith to be saved. Whatever the smallest amount of faith there is, that's what it takes. Now, we see a group of Pharisees in this passage that have some kind of look of a little faith. Look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, John writes, after all of he's said already, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So some had this little secret faith, and and these are folks that didn't consider the price of publicly professing their faith worth the cost. They'd be put out of the synagogue. That means they would lose everything. That didn't mean they couldn't just worship. That means they were no longer part of the community. They were cast out. They would have to move away. They'd have to find new work. They'd have to find new friends. We can't relate to this, all of it anyway. Many of you have lost for your faith. But there's not this steep a cost of being a Christian yet. public confession of faith in Jesus is the normal confession, expression, rather, of belief in Him. We see that in Romans 10, 9. If you confess your faith, he's, uh, that's part of, of uh, what Romans 10, 9, 10 expresses about salvation. But I want to be clear that public confession is not necessarily a condition for salvation. It's, a, it's part of your heart. If you're willing to confess Christ as, as Lord, obviously some people are mute and can't speak and can't express that. However, they are still saved because they've put their faith in Christ. But something else John is doing here, he's rebuking this kind of faith of these Pharisees. Because to follow Jesus is to tell your friends that you've put your faith in Jesus, despite whatever the social consequences may be. 
And if you're going to be a faithful disciple of Christ, you're going to face this dilemma at some point. People will find out what you believe. You don't know how they're going to respond. And following Christ is about playing the long game. People won't understand. And then whose glory are you going to seek? That's what the passage is saying. Do you want the glory of God, which is going to be delayed? You may not fully get the glory of God till you see Him in heaven. But you know what? There is not one ounce of suffering that you're going to undergo for Christ right now that God is not going to use for your spiritual growth and benefit now as well as reward in the future. And now tell me what's superior, the glory of God or the glory of man? We know the answer to that. But we're always going to struggle with making our faith known. We're always going to be in circumstances where we're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to be ashamed of Christ and what I believe? And can you be in a relationship with someone of whom you're ashamed? That brings us to a positive consequence. Number one, it brings relationship with God. Belief brings relationship with God. Look at these next verses. Jesus is making one final appeal to people to believe. Uh, In verses 44 and 45, he says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now, to understand the claims made by Jesus, that he's his son, you'll also believe in the Father. They're not the same person, but they are unified in their essence. And look at the tone of Christ in 44. He is crying out. He's crying out for people to believe. If they believe in him, they'll also believe in the Father, and they'll see the Father. See, Jesus is restoring the relationship to the Father. This is what Jesus wants. He'll explain it down in verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus came into town on a donkey. He he came in peace, not in judgment. He wants people to hear and believe. Jesus does not want people to fall into the judgment of the Father. He doesn't want that to happen. He came so we could have a relationship to the Father. And there's a wonderful description. There's a a Puritan by the name of Thomas Goodwin. If you've never read the Puritans, if they can say it in 10 words, they'll use 500, but that's okay. Um, They've got rich, rich writings. And Thomas Goodwin, uh, he stated this. He said, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased by His showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting His members here on earth. There's a great illustration of this. You know, if you think about a compassionate doctor that, that, that's traveled deep into the jungle, and he, and he went there to provide medical care to a, a tribe that was afflicted with this contagious disease, He's had all his medical equipment flown in. He's diagnosed the problem. The antibiotics are prepared. They're available. He's independently wealthy. He's got no need of any financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide these people care, they refuse care. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. 
But then finally, a few brave men will step forward to receive the, the care that's freely provided. Now, what does that doctor feel when those young men finally step forward? Well, he's overjoyed. He came there to provide the kind of healing. See, that's what Christ came to do. He's overjoyed when people profess their faith in him, when people admit, man, I really am a sinner. That's what Jesus came to heal as the great physician. So he's with us. It's the reason he came. And he doesn't doesn't get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for forgiveness, for renewed pardon, when we bring to him our distress and our needs and our emptiness. That's the whole point. See, that's why he came, to bring all our junk to him. And he's happy to take care of it. It brings a relationship with him. It also brings light for living. It brings light. We've talked about this before. Jesus says it again, his purpose in verse 46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I'm very thankful. I'm very so thankful for the decision of the Supreme Court this past week. It was the right move. People still have to have the gospel. A law is not going to change the heart. Christ came to change the heart. He came to give us light. If you want to know why our pregnancy care centers being torched, why are people crawling up on bridges? Why are people riding? It's because they're in darkness. We have the light and we want to share the light, share the gospel. And then finally, belief brings eternal life. Brings eternal life. In the last two verses, Jesus reiterates that he's spoken in complete obedience to the Father. And that what he said leads to eternal life. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. See, all of this goes together. If you want purpose, if you want this relationship, if you want this eternal life, it all comes from Christ. And he's even the one who unifies us through the power of the Holy Spirit as his church right now. So don't be a closet Christian. Come out. Let your faith flag fly. Confess Christ. Walk in the light. Enjoy eternal light. Put all this together. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and enjoy a relationship with him. Trust and enjoy him. I want to close with a story about it. He was a young professor. He actually was at a, at a university not far from where I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm West Virginia. This is Virginia. Uh, the UVA, his name was Ken Elzinga, and he joined the faculty. He was a fairly new believer, but he was a, a gifted professor. 
And he was warned by a colleague. He said, if you're going to be explicit about your faith, it's going to hinder your career. But he had agreed to speak at a Christian group on campus, but he was stunned when he looked and he saw his face on a flyer that had been hung up all over campus that he was going to be speaking at this campus Christian event. And he was a new believer, and he thought, well, what, is this, what are my fellow professors going to think? Is this going to hurt my chances at tenure? And he had what he experienced as a, a dark night of the soul. And he returned to campus, and he secretly took some of the posters down, at least he thought of it. But the next morning, he put the posters back up. After hours of soul searching, he concluded that his life and career and ambition was not about him. It was about faithful discipleship. And he decided that being private about his faith was not an option. And in the past 40 years since that happened, he's been a professor of the year multiple times. He's a speaker in high demand. But he'll be the first person to say that serving only one master has been what has most liberated him. And why is that? Because when we are serving only one master, it makes us less anxious. We're less sensitive to criticism. We're more courageous. And we do that, we become more secure, and we're no longer competing for our honor because it's already been given to us by Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Almighty God, Lord, I pray that we would be a people of strong, strong belief with an unwavering assurance that you have saved us from our sins. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you made this final plea to the people. And Lord, for all we know, this might be the final plea that you make to us today to put our faith in you. I pray that we would live it out, that we would live in a, a place of trust, that you would tear down the other idols in our hearts, and that we would live only for you, that we would enjoy relationship with you, the light that you bring with the confidence that we'll enjoy eternal life with you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you, if you have anything that you would like prayer for, uh, please uh, come down and talk to me. Me and some of the other elders will be down at the front. We'd love to pray with you. We also have some coffee and donuts out in the foyer. Please stick around, mill around a little bit, hang out. We'll also be having some Sunday school classes that you can attend uh, for adults in here in room 135. Otherwise, have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll see you soon.